Indeed, all praise is due to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The first and the last. Salawat and salam be upon his final prophet and messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. His pure family, noble companions, and all true believers until the very last day. We are in the second last week of this 1442 Hijri calendar year. This is the second last or penultimate Juma that we have. An ideal time indeed to self-reflect. An ideal time to sum up what have we done for the past year. The blessed and holy month of Dhul Hijjah is about to expire, about to end. The holy month of Muharram is about to begin. It is ideal time to ask ourselves, where do we stand in our relationship with our Creator, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, with our Lord, the mighty and the majestic Allah azza wa jal. Did we move any step forward, closer, nearer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this particular year? Or did we make so many steps backwards and we are, na'udhu billah, at much worse place than we were exactly this same time last year around? That would not be a wise policy for a believer. A true believer, he understands the concept of time and he understands that every minute of his life is a great blessing and gift from Allah Almighty and opportunity to draw closer to him and to purify himself or his heart. Did we not say several weeks ago, the fifth step of the self-purification process or the purification of our heart, tazkiyatu nafs or qalb or matharatul qalb or tatahirul qalb, you can call it as you wish, as you like, I don't mind. Wasn't the fifth step self-reflection? It was. And it is something that the Qur'an mentions very strongly and powerfully. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to instill in our minds, in our conscience, this notion that you will be reckoned. There will be hisab, yawmul hisab. Inna Allah sari'ul hisab. Allah is swift in reckoning. And this reckoning or judgment accounting for will come very quick. And when it comes, there is no delaying of it. The question really is, are we ready for any sort of reckoning? And are we doing any kind or type or any degree of self-reflection or self-reckoning? Last week I told you, mashallah, it's now summer holidays, school break. A lot of children are here. That is so reassuring and so nice to see indeed. They are our future. We can see that inshallah ta'ala this beautiful masjid, many, many generations to come will be enjoying this premise and will be prostrating, bowing down to Allah subhanahu ta'ala 
in ruku' and sujood, praying to him in devotion. That is so reassuring. But we really do not know for how long each and every one of us will have the opportunity to serve Allah and travel on this very noble and unique path, our journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So before we are caught in surprise, let us self-reflect. Let us do a really strong, critical self-reckoning. Sum, uh, sum up our accounts, not just our bank accounts, and we may have several bank accounts in different banks of different types. This account, personal account, savings account, this account, that account. Do we ever think that we have an account of our good and bad deeds? Two accounts, for sure. And how are we crediting each one of them? That is the question. So last week we began telling you a very beautiful and strong, in my opinion, very wise and very deep self-reflection process that Hatim al-Assam, who was a famous Muslim scholar from early ages, shared with his master, with his sheikh, with his teacher, Shaqiq al-Balkhi. The Shaykh asked Hatim, Shaqiq asked Hatim, for how long did you accompany me? And he said, I've been studying under your blessed guidance for 30 years. This is a really decent academic career. Some of you might be lecturers at Cambridge or Anglia Ruskin University or at some colleges here or primary or secondary schools or elsewhere, and you are a visiting fellow or professor here. If anyone tells you that you had the privilege of studying under Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad for 20 or 30 years, that will be some feat, amazing feature, amazing. Here are two great saints and scholars of our past in deep conversation, very prominent and profound self-reflection I've studied for 30 years under your guidance, tutelage. And the Sheikh says, Sheikh says, so what have you learned in the past 30 years or so? He said, I learned eight things. And the Sheikh says, La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajoon. He said, how come for 30 years you only learned eight things? And Hatim says, it's part of my nature that I never lie. I'm always trying to be honest. I'm, if I learned nine things, I would have said nine. If I learned 11, I would have said 11, but I really learned eight very important things. And then the Sheikh says, after his <laughs> expression and amusement, please then tell me what are the eight things. Maybe it's something really profound and important. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't be sharing it with you. We can read this story in Ghazali, Zihya, many other books as well. So last week we covered the first two. I just, some of you didn't listen to my khutbah last week because we have two jumas here, two sermons. So the first thing Hatim said, he said, I observed people and I realized that each and every one of us, there are no exceptions in this. We are longing for someone that we think cares about us, a beloved. We all want someone that we regard as our loved one. And I remember one of my teachers back in Bosnia, he said, 
you never have enough good friends. Like, it's say, you live in Cambridge, we are 4,000 Muslims and I don't know how many thousand people in total. But even if half of Cambridge were your friends, or you made loads of friends, wherever you come from, Ilford or Birmingham, loads and loads of thousands of people are your good friends, it's never going to be enough. You'll feel like, I need to move house, I need a few hands to help me move the furniture. When you go down the list in your phone, you struggle to collect six, seven people, or whatever you do. Really try to do it. I've tried it. So they say it's never enough to have so many good friends. But he said to us, you only need one enemy, and it's more than enough. We all need just one person who is antagonistic towards us, either envies us or has some issue with us. He's going to give you loads of issues and problems. So it is like that. So we all really want people who love us. We want friends, good willing, good wishing people around us. Nobody wants an enemy around you, around them. No one, not a single one. He said, I looked at that. Some people have really strong love bond, you know, a loving relationship, platonic, whatever you want to call it, even a husband and wife. And they seem to be there for one another and they follow one another. They even feel pain and sadness on any kind of separation. A week conference abroad, painful. A year apart, like a brother told me, I haven't seen my wife, Imam, for seven, eight months because of the pandemic and travel restrictions, please make dua. I really felt sorry for him. Seven, eight months, not seeing your spouse and children, really painful. So we all want to be really close to our loved ones and, and share our time with them. But he said, some people follow their loved one all the way to their grave. Like they're always there, especially when they fall ill, in need, that is the time, that is the time when you see your true, really true, sincere friends. They come to rescue you, to help you. And they follow them. But I said, I never saw a loved one really attempt to sit and go all the way in somebody's grave. We love our parent, mom or dad or sibling or grandparent in their grave. And we quickly, you know, ask people to pull our hands and help us get out of the grave. And then we, we throw the soil on the person, clay, and we leave. After janazah, half an hour later, maybe less. Some people go quickly. Some people go to visit next day, some people don't. Some people visit next week, some don't. Some visit next year. Some never maybe return to see the grave of their loved one. I'm being honest, and it's happened, I know this. But he said, I don't want that. I want my loved one, my special friend, my best friend, to always at all times accompany me, especially to be my friend and give me a friendship, love and attention when I'm all by myself and I'm all going to be by myself in my grave. Before grave, there's always someone around. If you have kids, they'll be around you always. And I realized that loved one that will never give up on me, will follow me forever, is al-baqiyatu al-salihat. Wal-baqiyatu salihatu khayrun inda rabbika thawaban wa khayrun amala. It is my good deeds, he said. The one thing that will never leave me. It is that account, very personal account. He's going to follow you. Of course, your bad deeds will go with you too. 
But the bad deeds, unfortunately, not going to give you good friendship and companionship in your grave, or nor will you be happy to see any of your sinful act on Judgment Day. But you will be quite delighted and relieved to see some of your good deeds, like this Friday prayer that you attended today, with, inshallah, very pure and noble intention. And the pound that you gave to the poor and hungry, and the orphan that you sponsored for the last 27 years, and the masjid, a house of Allah that you maintained and built during your, your past years, inshallah. So he said, I wanted to make sure that my good deeds are my beloved. And I wanted to make sure I do as many good deeds as I possibly can so that they can enlighten my grave, illuminate my grave, and comfort me at that time of loneliness and never leave me alone so that I meet my Lord and I'm quite happy and content. Then he said, second benefit, second lesson, second point he learned. I saw people, they tend to follow their lusts and desires, like whims, lower desires. I looked at the Quran and I realized this is a big problem. We all have within ourselves, okay, an inclination towards good, but also, unfortunately, you can say, an inclination towards evil, bad. And the war, the conflict between evil yeah, and good, good and bad, is going to carry on until Allah keeps humans alive. So he said, I look in the Quran and I really wanted to find a strong answer on this huge problem that every individual has. Those lower desires, the whims and pleasures, desires, keep pulling us down. They just want to pull us down as much as possible and turn us into like animals, beasts, even worse than animals, the Quran says. People who don't control their nafs. Allah says, They have all those amazing faculties that Allah bestowed them with. Allah gave them, but they simply don't know how to utilize them. So they turn into animals even worse than that. So he said, I wanted an answer. What it is that I need to do to be able to say no? to be able to pull a break up, to be able to stop and reflect, stop and think twice before I say or do something. Stop and say no, firmly no, and again no, because it's not good for me, even though I feel like doing it, even though I desire it so much. Something, a drive within me, inside of me is telling me, do it, it's so and thrilling and amazing. You're gonna love it. It's gonna be an experience for you to remember for the rest of your life. But I don't know if it's gonna be a very good ending to it, a very good outcome in what we believe is what really matters in the next life, in the eyes of Allah. So he said, I meditated over this issue for such a long time. I thought and thought about it until I read this ayah in surah which you all probably memorize surah an nazihat in juz amma Allah says this ayah three verses so he said I realized that any one of us who attains this 
let's say, notion of taqwa or piety, God consciousness. But it is not that I, you and I are afraid of being burnt in the hellfire alone. It is not that you and I are afraid of being possessed by some spirit. It's not that you and I are afraid of becoming bankrupt. It's not that you and I are af afraid of falling down and breaking our arm <coughs> or leg. It is actually being anxious in awe, afraid of displeasing the one that you claim to love and respect. When you reach the level of God consciousness, that you don't want to do an act that you know Allah is not going to be pleased with, He'll be angry at you if you do it. It's much better than if you are afraid of being burnt and thrown into the hellfire as a result of your bad deeds. It's really important to distinguish between what we really want and pleasure and displeasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here you can say maqam really means as the Prophet ﷺ prayed once in his prayer, Allahumma inni as'aluka ridaka wal jannah. This is wawul ibtida. If you know Arabic, you will understand what I mean. So the Prophet ﷺ carefully prayed in his dua, in his supplication. Oh Allah, I ask you of your pleasure. And then I also ask you for jannah. But if Allah is pleased with you, Jannah will follow. Then it's not wawul ibtida, it's fa'u ta'qib. Subsequently, you will go to Jannah if Allah is pleased with you. On the other hand, if you don't care and you constantly displease Allah, you can say, A'udhu bika min al-nar. You can say, Allah, I seek refuge from the hellfire or the torment or the punishment of the hellfire. But it's much better if you say, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min sakhatika wal-nar. Or Allah, I seek refuge in you from your displeasure. Because if we make sure we never displease Allah, subsequently we will be saved from, henceforth, we'll be saved from the punishment in the next life. Whatever it is, burning or being frozen, and again and again, in, in the next life, it doesn't really matter. So I'll unfortunately have to end here. But we'll carry on, inshallah ta'ala, next week if Allah gives us the opportunity. So he says, I understood this ayah properly after a long contemplation, self-reflection, and then I was convinced that Allah is always speaking the truth and right. So I began to deny my soul its pleasures, its lower desires, and I hurried and prepared well to combat it. And I refused, simply refused its passions, desires, until I began enjoying real satisfaction of obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and worshipping him and pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, doing what pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he gives us the tawfiq, the ability to perform as many good deeds as possible because they are our most beloved. That's what we concluded today. Likewise, we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be on our side and to help us to combat our nafs, our lower desires, our whims, our passions that can easily pull us down and maybe we never know, cause a huge uh, destruction that we will not be pleased about in the next life. So we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be with us and that we self-reflect as much as possible, but at least towards the end of each 
our Islamic calendar year and I also pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us our mistakes, our sins and our shortcomings of this year and we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us absolute forgiveness and to grant us another opportunity with another lovely good season of worship so that we can purify our hearts and yet again draw closer and closer to our ultimate goal to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Aqulu qawli hadha wa astaghfirullah al-azim li wa lakum fastaghfiruhu innahu huwa al-ghafuru rahim. Indeed, all praise is due to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Salawat and salam be upon his final prophet and messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his pure family, noble companions, and all true believers until the very last day. Indeed, we are living the very last few days of the current Islamic calendar year. Today is the 27th of Dhil Hijjah. It could be the second last day of this current Islamic year. And it means for us believers, Muslims, this is an ideal time indeed to self-reflect, to do some kind of self-reckoning, summing up our year, our accounts, the book of our deeds, being truly honest with our own self, trying to realize and identify where do we stand today in comparison to the last year on the same day and maybe 10 years ago and maybe since you reached the age of puberty or maturity and what it is that you would like to do with yourself and people perhaps who are dependent on you and people that you come across on daily basis for the coming year. It is an ideal time. Last week, we began sharing with you some really profound ideas. Very deep contemplation. Quite a unique, I would say, self-reflection at the hands of one of the greatest Muslim saints. Hatim al-Asam who passed away, rahmatullah alayhi, 852 CE, more than, more than 1,200 years ago. He lived in the third, at the end of second, and mid or the beginning or in the third Hijri century. And his shaykh, Shaqiq al-Balkhi, was even closer to the beloved, sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Sahaba al-Kiram, the noble companions of his. Rahmatullahi ta'ala alayhima. Last week we only managed to share with you two of his amazing conclusions that he shared with his beloved teacher and Shaykh, Shaykh Shaqiq al-Balkhi. But there are eight conclusions that he made and his teacher, who also is one of the greatest saints of our sacred tradition, agreed with him. And in a way said, maybe it's one of the very best summaries of our religion, 
I was thinking the other day about the eight things that Hatim al-Assam mentioned that you can read in many different books of Islam in a way resembled the calligraphy discs which we have uh, in this masjid, subhanAllah. Just, it's, it's, it's a coincidence a little bit, not much in 100% 808, but most of the key principles of our religions are mentioned in, these, in this conversation and the key principles of our religion are actually beautifully inscribed on those green discs or round discs that you can see on the walls of this truly magnificent and beautiful masjid. So what did he say to his sheikh, Sheikh Hatim al-Assam? I don't want to repeat myself, I certainly am not going to explain the first two again. But he did say in the first one, all about beloved. Our good deeds must become our most beloved. That's the first point. Al-Baqiyatu Salihat. The second point was that you're going to learn how to say no to your nafs, ego. If you do not, in other words, take charge and control of your lower self, of your whims and desires, then for sure your lower self will take charge of you. Your ego will control you. Basically, you're going to lose the control. And this is a very risky business to be involved in. That's the second benefit or point. What is the third then? Hatim al-Assam says, I saw that every human being, every single person that he met in his life, was really working very hard, striving so hard to accumulate as much as he or she could from the wreckages of this world, he said. Basically, material goods of this worldly life. They worked really hard to accumulate as much wealth as possible. And then he said, those of them who were successful in it, they had certain skills or stamina or intelligence, whatever you want to call it, skills to accumulate wealth. Once they accumulated certain amount of wealth, they held very firstly and strongly onto it. You have like, let's say, two cars. They are everything to you in your, in your yard. You have two beautiful children also playing in your courtyard. What is more beloved to you, your Porsche or your own child? Something like that. But what if there are two beautiful plants in your front and rear garden? Did you ever water them? Or fruit trees, apple or pear? Or is it only the statue that you crafted you are proud of and now value it at a certain price? You want two million pounds for your painting. So he said, this is strange. He wanted an answer from the Holy Quran. Usually his conclusions are all Quran Quranic verses. And he said, I read the Quran and I contemplated over this interesting behavior by human beings, part of our human nature. And I realized the Quran says, Whatever it is that you accumulate, whatever it is that is with you, it will perish one day. It means nothing. It has no real value. It's actually not even reality. Not a real asset. But whatever it is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is everlasting. It will never cease to exist or perish. In other words, I can narrate to you another ayah. He quoted this one. 
in Surah Al-Fajr, there are actually two variations of reading it. <laughs> Sometimes I get a little bit scared. The common one is that The Quran says, you all, Allah is addressing us human beings, not just the believers. Humans, you all love to accumulate wealth. Like you love to have wealth and you hold firmly, uh, stingily onto it. But I actually favored another reading, which is a little bit less rare, less popular, but it's more in line with the whole Surah Al-Fajr and what was going on. The reference clearly was made to the chiefs of Mecca or people in Mecca who really loved wealth and wouldn't really listen to the Prophet ﷺ because they couldn't give up on their earnings, on their income. So you can say, وَيُحِبُّونَ الْمَالَ حُبًّا جَمَّةً وَلَا يَحُضُّونَ عَلَى طَعَامِ الْمِسْكِينَ وَيُحِبُّونَ الْمَالَ حُبًّا جَمَّةً وَيَأْكُلُونَ التُّرَاثَ أَكْلًا نَمَّةً وَيُحِبُّونَ الْمَالَ حُبًّا جَمَّةً كَلَّا So the Quran describes that they didn't really take care of orphans or poor people. I'm not saying all of them. Of course, amongst them was the Prophet ﷺ from Quraysh. They were good people, but they were others who were basically overtaken by the material goods and wealth wouldn't really sympathize with the less fortunate members of the community, nor will they basically compromise in any way when it comes to money and wealth. Everything for them was just to increase their wealth, and you can't go anywhere near that, and that is their DNA, like part of their nature. The Quran says, we do tend to like to accumulate wealth. But let's say, let's compromise between the two readings and find a middle ground. Inshallah, I hope not everyone sitting in this beautiful main prayer hall is too crazy about owning too many things and accumulating material goods. But we need some of the things. They are some things that we regard as part of our necessities. So maybe if we focus on that and Allah grants us with a little bit extra so that we live a comfortable life rather than a luxurious and extravagant life that inshallah in our tradition, in our religion should be fine and accepted. But anything above that could be very much questionable because it goes back to your very intention. Why it is that you want to become the richest man in the world? That's the real question. Why it is that you want to become the, the most acclaimed and famous property developer in the United Kingdom? Why it is that you want to become the biggest landowner in Cambridgeshire or East Anglia or in Europe? Question, big question. Ask yourselves, I don't need to interrogate any one of you. So he said, the point is this. Whatever you have, know you are been, you've been entrusted what you got. You will be questioned about every penny you earned, everything you lifted, everything you brought into your house, put in your store, put in your car, everything you put on your body in terms of clothing, even this watch. Okay, it was gifted to me when I finished Quran, alhamdulillah. But there are things that we sometimes do, but we don't really understand that this watch and the car that I'm driving right now doesn't really matter. It serves its core purpose, main objective, which is to transport me from A to B. Not really anything more than that. 
But what is with Allah is truly what matters. So in other words, we need to start thinking like Hatim al-Assam. And look what he said. Convinced that the Quran was always true in its speech and meaning and right, I began to deny myself. And I realized that I need to start giving freely, not only give. I really like this song. I think it's David Monsbury. He said, give a bit of yourself, not just a bit of your wealth. I love it because how many of us are willing freely, freely to give? You know, I have 40 pounds here. Oh, this is a face mask. 40 pounds, I'll give 20 and another 20 I'll keep to myself. Half of what I had in my pocket I gave. Freely, no easy task on our nafs. And how many will give half of their wealth in total? He said, I began giving freely from my worldly possessions because I understood Allah entrusted it to me. And I began distributing it for Allah's sake among the poor and the needy so that my provision would be safe in the future and with Allah. In other words, whatever we earned and accumulated, the real, the real asset, the real investment that, that will last forever is the charity, the wealth, the money that you gave for Allah's sake. That's what this means. So he understood, whatever came to you, through your hands, through your bank accounts, you are the middle man. Give it to where it belongs. And then you own it. Then you see it with Allah. And you'll be pleased and happy. Who was like that? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was exactly like that. Nothing of any value, even a certain quantity of food, wouldn't hang about in his Fridges and freezers and shelves didn't have none of that in his house. He will straight away channel it to the very next door neighbor or someone who maybe he heard when he prayed the last praying masjid in Nabawi was in need of it or didn't eat for a couple of days. He gave away straight away. And he even said, We'll never store away things from you. If Allah gives something to me, it's a gift, or I earned it, or it's my right and haq, he said, I shall give it to you. And he owned nothing. To me, the best people in the world are those who managed to pass away. They did great things. And never spoke about people, but instead, they spoke of ideas, and developed ideas, and devices. Means for everyone to have a better life. But then they died, and before they died, they didn't own anything. There was no house in their name just before they died. There was no even car in their name. There was no land or building society in their name. Even the clothes was just what they really needed. Those are the true saints. May Allah make us among them. I'll just share with you one more benefit. So, whatever you give away, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will replace it for you, means it will wait for you on judgment day, and you will be very pleased and happy to see it. In fact, He will give you many fold more. A God, we say goodly loan, means the loan for Allah, investment for Allah's sake, is multiplied many folds by the Quran. And that is the true investment and business that we need to be dealing with. 
The full benefit, Hatim al-Assam said, he said, I, some people whom I observed, they, they think, they just think or believe that true dignity, or let's say honor, lies in the multitude of family members, like having the biggest family or clan. They were truly fascinated by these things. They took so much honor and pride in it. Others, on the other hand, they claim that honor and dignity is in abundance of wealth. They just need to be rich, and that's what makes somebody very honorable and successful in life. And quite strangely, he said, I also saw some people who believed that honor and power rests in appropriating the wealth of others, like doing injustice to people, stealing. They thought that's really cool, taking of other people's things and goods and being in charge and, and oppressing people and so on. Very strange indeed. And then he said, in a similar way, but others consider dignity to consist of wasting, extravagance, israf and tasrif, and spending wealth or what they have in a foolish manner, like randomly and in a really strange way. I remember one footballer, I'm not going to name him in case he becomes a Muslim. He played for Man United many years ago, very famous. I remember reading one article, he went to a pub somewhere when he was off season, and he took some cash from his pocket many years ago. There's hardly any cash around, notes. And he took 50 pounds, was the highest note in UK. And in front of a waiter, he just tore it. And he said to him, look, I can do this. You can't do that. Like, I can just do whatever I want with my mouth. Because his age is huge. They'll never spend what they earn, some of those people. So there are people like that. May Allah protect us and make us understand. So again, he said, I looked for answers in the Holy Quran. And I came across this ayah, which is so beautiful. Again, one of those discs on our masjid. Indeed, the most honorable or honored of you in the sight of Allah is the most righteous of you. So he understood that the true honor is actually taqwa. The true honor is not wealth, so many kids, being in a, in a very strong position, being in charge, in power, and so on and so forth, or being physically strong, full of stamina, or handsome. No, that's not. The true honor is taqwa. Allah doesn't look at our appearances. Allah doesn't look at our cars or houses or wealth. Even our children, He looks at our hearts. That's the place of our piety. So He said, I chose righteousness for myself. Very convinced that the Qur'an again is right and true. And those claims and opinions of other people that we just mentioned are all indeed false and temporary. Even if they felt some honor at the time as they were doing those things, it was all temporary. The true honor indeed is taqwa. So we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He makes us honorable in His sight in his eyes, and that is by being truly conscious of him, uh, being, in, being very in awe of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and very heedful, being aware, mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in fear and also hope. And we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we become among those people 
if Allah favors us by giving us so much wealth, then we know where to channel it. We know how to dispose of it and fulfill our trust in, in Allah's eyes. I also pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he makes it a very pleasant and nice and beneficial ending to this current Islamic calendar year and gives us a very blessed new Islamic calendar year, a much better one than the one we just witnessed. And I also pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he forgives us our mistakes and our shortcomings and our sins. And we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he deserves beautiful places for us in the beautiful gardens of Jannah. Indeed, all praise is due to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our creator, our sustainer, our cherisher, the very first and the very last, the most kind, the most merciful, the giving and the forgiving. Salawat and salam be upon his final prophet and messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his pure family, noble companions, and all true believers until the very last day. Today, my brothers and sisters, is the 5th of Muharram, 1443. And I would like to use this very blessed opportunity to wish you all a very blessed and fruitful and happy new Islamic year. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant you all that you desire, that you wish in this and in the next life. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep each and every one of you safe and healthy and in good state of iman and afiyah, inshallah ta'ala. As we have been saying for the last couple of khutbas, Fridays, it is an ideal time as well for us to self-reflect, to do some kind of self-reckoning, a little bit deeper contemplation. In times like these, when we see huge disparities all around us and throughout this globe, if we don't sit down and start to think about the big questions and reassess our own position, our own relationship with our Creator Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and see exactly where do we stand in that regard, then I really don't understand what are the other times when we will feel like doing so. Indeed, these are really difficult times, but usually a true sincere servant or worshipper of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does so well exactly in those times. The Quran testifies to that. The Quran says, when it's difficult times, a calamity strikes upon you, something is not going as you planned, we tend to turn towards Allah and engage in ibadah, in prayer, in worship. And not only do we engage, but we prolong our prayers. فَذُو دُعَاءٍ عَرِيض means really lengthy, very good, nice, properly concentrated and focused prayer. And indeed, these are the times for it. The end of the year and now witnessing the beginning 
a new Islamic year. And I told you last week and the week before, the level of contemplation and self-reflection that that great scholar of Islam, early Islamic times, and his Sheikh, Sheikh al-Balkhi, those points that he concluded, those lessons that he wanted to share with his Sheikh, and now, alhamdulillah, by Allah's grace and will, all those points have reached us, are indeed beautiful, amazing lessons that we all can take and work with our own selves. So we managed to explain four of them, and they are eight in total. The fifth benefit or lesson or point that Hatim al-Assam shares with his shaykh, his beloved, his dear shaykh, Shaqiq al-Balkhi, is he said, I found people slandering each other and unfortunately speaking ill of one another. And that is out of envy, hasad. And that is out of envy for wealth, he said, fortune. Sometimes out of envy for power, position. Like you know someone in your family, or it doesn't have to be your family, uh, your friends or neighbors, or a colleague of yours who is your boss, or maybe a few letters above you, the CEO of your corporation, and you just can't stand it because he's a little bit younger than you or because you grew up together and you know that you actually did better than him at college or school or university and it's just killing you, it's destroying you, you're so jealous. Too envious, you just can't handle it. But Allah chose that person to be the head of that company, not you. You need to accept that, it's a reality. So people envy each other like this for a better status, a better position or power and knowledge. But we know Imam al-Ghazali, he told us, لا حسد إلا في اثنتين. There are only two instances when we can actually feel some kind of envy, if you want to say it like that, or be a little bit jealous of someone. That is, according to al-Ghazali, like a praiseworthy jealousy. لا حسد إلا في اثنتين رجل. The Prophet Ali he said, this is a hadith which is sound, sahih. Envy is not allowed, except in two instances or occasions. When there is a man whom Allah blessed to learn the Holy Quran, and he learned it, and then he goes on to teach it to other people. So you can say a Hafiz al-Quran or a scholar of Quran, you can envy a scholar of Quran because you want to be like that. But you certainly don't want that Hafiz of Quran to forget all of his Quran and, and to, to blur and make mistake after mistake in his talks. Not like that, but you just want to be like him, if not better than him, that is all right. And the other person that you may envy, and it may be like praiseworthy, is someone else whom Allah has bestowed or gave or favored upon him so much of wealth or more wealth than what you have. But that very person, he knows that he's been entrusted that wealth. He's not the real owner of it. So he discharges it. He channels it to the right path, like we explained last week. He gives most of it, if not all of it, in charity. Allah gave you wealth, but you give it then to those who need it more than you do. You may envy such a person, but again, not that 
he goes into bankruptcy the next week or soon, not during the lockdown, even before the lockdown is over. And you just want to have it. And you don't want anyone else absolutely to have any wealth and you want people to starve or something like that. That is a disease, illness, big haram. So if you want to pray to Allah to give you more wealth, there's nothing wrong with that. You can pray to Allah, make me the richest person on this earth. Absolutely the richest, I will try it. Richest and the biggest land owner, landlord, if you want to say, I don't like that term, landlord. But then if you are going to give in endowments, awqaf, all the land that you acquired, that you purchased, that'll be good. And all the wealth that Allah bestowed upon you, you gave it to the orphan and the needy and the poor and the widow and so on and so forth. Alhamdulillah, that's beautiful. That'll be nice. But there are very few like that. وَقَلِيلٌ مِنْ a very few of my servants, Allah says, more than once in the Qur'an, are truly grateful to me. And very few are like Sayyidina Sulaiman So coming back to this point, with knowledge, he's right. Hatim al-Assam is right. There are people who envy other people just because they are more knowledgeable than them, or more qualified, or have better skills than them but not in this praiseworthy way that we just explained according to this beautiful hadith of our beloved Prophet in a bad way. They want to have the knowledge to control people and to exhort some unhealthy kind of power, not to be wiser and to lead their community or household or to teach their own kids, children, in a better way so that they become a better educator and murabbi father, better mother, better father. So they go on to learn all about Islamic tarbiyah. Not that. They just want to show off that they have more knowledge. Na'udhu billah. Or they just want to control other people. I totally condemn that. In that sense, Hatim is right. People do all kinds of things. Ill thoughts, slandering, backbiting and slandering other people just out of envy and jealousy. May Allah protect us. Then he said, I really thought deep about this. Why is it like that? Why so many people fall under this very trick of shaitan? You know, this is a simple thing. And unfortunately, it can actually happen with very close family members. I'm telling you, I've dealt with cases where parents and children are involved at the core of this huge disease and illness of envy, which also could include power and knowledge and also wealth between father and son, daughter and mom, daughter and father and so on, and two brothers, and brother and sister, two sisters, honestly. It's unbelievable, but it's true. Not to say beyond that circle. If people are doing that, of course, I can understand now why they would be jealous to a friend of theirs, or a colleague of theirs, or someone who studied with them in the same class, as I said. That's the most obvious one, really. So may Allah protect us. He said, I contemplated over this particular issue, social disease, you can say, ill. And I wanted to find an answer. The best place is the Quran. That's why I, I referred to that hadith. The best among you are those who read and learn the Quran. Because all of our questions, 
dilemmas that we have, the answers to those are all in the Holy Quran, in the glorious Quran. We just need to make proper wudu before we read it, face the Qibla, have proper etiquettes, adab, open the pages, sincerely read it, you will see the answer. Clear as daylight. I'm telling you. So he read Quran like that, Rahmatullah alayhi, and he said, I came across this ayah in the Quran, Surah Zukhruf. Unbelievable ayah. I mean, every time I revise my Quran, I a little bit shake when I come to this section. The whole Surah Zukhruf shakes me a little bit, but especially these verses. It's at the beginning of the Surah almost, second, third page. The people of Mecca, they used to raise this argument. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose our beloved Prophet to be Allah's final Prophet and Messenger and sent him to his people in Mecca to lead them to Allah, to call them to Islam, to call them to the oneness of Allah and to accept his prophethood, they couldn't understand how someone who was an orphan from relatively poor family would be chosen to such a high position to be the chosen one, Al-Mustafa, Al-Mujtaba, Al-Murtada. They couldn't understand. So they came up with this silly argument. وَقَالُوا لَوْلَا نُزِّلَ هَذَا الْقُرْآنُ عَلَى رَجُلٍ مِنَ الْقَرْيَتَيْنِ عَظِيمٍ Listen to this ayah. They said, Ah, if only this Quran was revealed to a man from one of the two towns and then the attribute of the man a man actually, any man is a great man if you understand Arabic but you need to be really good in Arabic even if you're an Arab, don't be offended with what I'm saying, but try to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to tell them they are saying, if only this Qur'an was revealed to a great man from Mecca or Taif, according to commentators, Allah wanted to say to them, there was no Rajulun Azim in Mecca or Taif except Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. By deferring the attribute of Azamah, greatness, at the end of the ayah. Sheikh Ma'an will understand what I'm talking about. Rajulin, and the sifa came at the end. Rajulin min al-qaryatayni, rajulin azim. There was no man who was great. The only one that deserved the message by Allah's wisdom and hikmah and grace was the Prophet, our beloved Prophet Muhammad And then the ayah, next ayah goes on. The question, the big one, which Hatim concluded. Ahum yaqsimuna rahmata rabbik? Is it them who divide the mercy of Allah amongst the people, amongst the creation of Allah, khalqullah? People are in charge of Allah's mercy and provisions? Or is it Allah who is in charge of mercy of His, provisions of His, everything? And everything is His. Lillahi mulku Who is in charge? Allah is beginning this ayah with this amazing question. And the answer comes straight away. نَحْنُ قَسَمْنَا بَيْنَهُمْ مَعِيشَتَهُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا It is Allah. It is we, but this is royal we. Allah. It is Allah 
who divides the worldly possessions among them, the livelihood, ma'isha, who divides between you and I and every single soul that has lived on the face of this beautiful earth and that will live until the day of judgment, who will give to that person its livelihood? From the first morsel of food or drink that they take in their blessed mouth until the very last one, even if they are at the age of 91 or the age of nine. Allah. And no other than Allah. Remember this. The Quran speaks the truth. And no other than the truth. Allah devised the livelihood among us. Then Allah says, by Allah's wisdom, we can't reach this. Our intellect is too small, very, very weak, and incapable to conclude bits of Allah's great wisdom. Allah chose that some of us will be rich, some average, and some quite poor, and some will struggle. And Allah decided by his grace and wisdom that we will not all be on equal footing in terms of our livelihood. But who divided that? Who decided that? Not your parents, not my parents, not your children, not you yourself, not your country, not your tribe, not your race, not your language, not your gender. Allah the Almighty. The wise, the giving and the forgiving. He chose and decided, if you understand this, then what Allah said at the end of this ayah is very beautiful. I, I don't know if Arabs also understand this, but they should. What does this mean? If you understand that Allah is in charge of our livelihood, then you will not envy your brother your sister, a human being, but you will try to help them, and in return they're gonna help you. This is what we call mutual help among us. You will employ someone if you are in that position, or you will be employed. If you are employing someone, you will be so nice to them. You will give them all their employees' rights, as Allah wants you to. On the other hand, if you are not in the position to employ someone, but you are an employee, you will do your job to your very best. And you will live up to your job agreement. That's it. And you won't envy each other. Because at the end of the day, who decided your actual wage and each morsel that you will put through your mouth? He'll tell you one story between two saints. I know you like it. A sheikh and his student having a dinner together. And the student takes a bit of food and he's just about to put it in his mouth. And the sheikh grabs it just before he put it inside his mouth, took it, snatched it from his hand. And he put it in his mouth and finished, ate it. And the student said like, wow, this, this is really according to adab, the adab of eating, etiquette. He said, I just want to teach you one lesson. That very morsel was mine. Allah wrote it for me, and it was meant to be, to be eaten by me. And I was meant to be nourished 
by it, not you. Remember that. Allah. This is the same point I'm trying to make. The livelihood, every single bit that you're going to consume, Allah decided for you. If you remember this, you will, of course, stop being jealous and envious to anyone. And to conclude, I tell you one story of a merchant. Every day he went to the market, always he was anxious. He's, he was selling some goods. He would always peep a little bit to the stall next to him, on this side, on that side, have a walk around the market. This is famous. If you are a trader, you will know what I'm talking about. He, he has a walk down, up, here and there, just to see the prices. If somebody's selling the same goods like him, what is it that they charge now? Not 11 a.m., at 2 p.m., because they keep changing the prices because they want to sell their merchandise. He was always anxious and always unhappy. Whatever profit he made on that day, on a particular day, he came back home thinking, the guy next to me made more money. There were more customers that purchased from him, even though my goods are better, he, th he thought. So, he was unhappy, but still in his business, trade, until he realized, oh, maybe there's something much higher than what I thought in, in the fact how many people will come on any day to my store or my stool and buy from me. And how many people will then return the good they bought him? I was happy. I transacted quite a lot. Half of that came back because it was faulty. It was your fault. Why didn't you check the goods that you sold to someone that they are not as good? This can happen. He understood that Allah is in charge of his provisions. Everything completely changed. And he said, I didn't care anymore how many things I sold. I, I didn't. How much profit I made. And I cared even less so how much of my next door sold or didn't. But I became content. And these two, my brothers and sisters, this is only one point I've managed to explain today. Hasid, the envy, which Hatim mentions, the cause of lots of evil. The opposite of it is qana'ah. Contentment with Allah's divine provision for you. The moment you become pleased and content with whatever you have, whatever you got, whatever you enjoy and use in your life, you will be truly happy. Until then, I'm not sure if you will ever be content and happy with what you have. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cleanse us from this horrible, blameworthy trait of envy and jealousy and instill in our very hearts the beautiful and praiseworthy trait of rida and qana'ah, contentment with Allah's divine decree, qada and qadar, portion that Allah decided for us and gave, assigned to us, gave us. أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله العظيم لي ولكم فاستغفروه إنه هو الغفور الرحيم بارك الله لنا ولك